Hi, welcome all. Um, thanks so much for coming in out of the sunshine. It will be a good exchange for an hour of sunshine, even this summer, I promise. Um, welcome to uh, those of you who are familiar with Etty Hilson. And I, I think kind of particularly to those who aren't really sure who she is. She's so fantastic. And this is, I'm, I'm so delighted to be having Sunday Forum about this. My name's Elizabeth Foy. I'm the head of adult learning here. It's my joy and my privilege to put on these events. I don't very often come on a Sunday anymore. Um, but it's lovely to be here again. Um, Etty and this book, which I'm going to hold up to you, uh, is, is personally terribly important to me. It was a couple of years ago on retreat when my spiritual director said to me, no, really, really read Etty Hilson. You're going to love her. She's going to be important to you. And that was very, very true. And she said, start with this book. She's a wise woman. She said, start with this book, which I'm also going to say to you is going to be available to buy at the end of this session. Let me tell you, at an attractive discount, which we have negotiated with the shop, cheaper than Amazon people. <laughs> and uh, it's a great place to start with Etty. And one of, the, one of the extraordinary things about working here and doing this job is that I'm sure we've all had that experience of reading a book, absolutely loving it, thinking, oh, I'm not quite ready for this book to finish. I'm not ready to be done with it. If you work here, that you can send an email to the, um, to the author, say, well, we've never met, but would you like to come round? <laughs> Ta-da! So, very, very delighted today to meet Patrick Woodhouse, who is the author of this wonderful book. Um, he, uh, well, he's, I'm not going to say anything about Etty, because he's going to say it, and he's going to say it much better than I could. Um, he was a canon of Wells Cathedral for uh, many years, so he's slightly slumming by coming here today, so we're very thankful for that. Uh, and also, he's just told me that he spent uh, some teenage years... Uh, in Amen Court, which some of you will... Ah, look, I can see somebody who knows what that means. And yeah, <laughs> uh, because his dad worked here. I had no idea. So I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to hand over to Patrick to introduce the fantastic Etty Hilsom. Uh, he'll talk for about 40 minutes, uh, and then we'll have some Q&A. Uh, ask anything you want, obviously. Um, and then we'll have some book sales. Thank you, and thanks for coming, Patrick. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. In the short time that we have, I want to share with you one of the most remarkable stories of faith of the 20th century. And it is a story that is not well known enough, even now. There may be some of you here who have read Etty Hillison and feel you know quite a lot about her. And that's excellent, and uh, we can talk more in the questions and answers about some of the particular aspects and nuances that you're interested in. And there may well be people here who have never heard of her at all and know nothing about her. And I, in a sense, assume that people haven't heard, and it's better to start from the beginning. Yes, I can see a few nods. So um, we'll do that. It's a story of a young Dutch-Jewish woman who eventually died aged 29 at Auschwitz and who, between March 1941 and October 1942, kept a diary. A diary which tells of a journey of transformation from being a chaotic, emotionally confused, sexually promiscuous young woman to being a luminous, even radiant presence in the transit camp where all the Dutch Jews were sent and where she volunteered to go in order to care for the most vulnerable and needy. In the very darkest years of the 20th century, in the midst of the horror of the Holocaust, 
It is a story of personal change and the forging of a spirituality of hope which enabled this remarkable young woman, even though she did not survive the Holocaust, to triumph over it. Now, you might well wonder whether, though it is a remarkable story, can it really belong to our time? It is, after all, over, well over 70 years now since she died. But through her diaries and the letters she wrote from the transit camp which have come down to us, Etty Hillesum emerges as a strangely contemporary figure. There are perhaps five aspects particularly that suggest this. First, she came from a, what can be called a dysfunctional family, and her route into faith was through psychotherapy. Second, she wasn't remotely interested in institutional religion. Third, at the heart of her faith was not doctrinaire belief, but a profound contemplative practice. Fourth, her spirituality crossed the boundaries of religion. She remained a Jew, but she was deeply influenced by Christianity. And maybe most significant, her spirituality was forged against the background of a world that was collapsing and where a terrible storm of hatred and fear was overwhelming people. For all these reasons, I think her story is profoundly worth pondering and has much to teach us now. In the very brief time that I have, I want to divide this story into three parts. First, who was she? Who was this young woman? What was her background? And from the chaos of her beginnings, how did a sense of integration and coherent selfhood emerge? Second, from this, how did she find her way into faith? And what were the hallmarks of that unconventional faith? Third, where did this faith lead her? As she gave herself to others, there is a Christ-like shape to her brief life. And I want to touch on something of what that meant. Inevitably, as time is very limited, much will be left out. But if your appetite to know more is whetted, well, can I urge you to buy the book, <laughs> in which I have tried to give a much fuller account. And this may lead you on to read the diaries themselves. So, first, who was this young woman? Etty Hillison was born in the town of Middleburg in Holland just over 100 years ago in January 1914. She grew up in the small provincial town of Deventer, where her father was the headmaster of the local secondary school. She came, you could say, from a chaotic home. Her parents were very ill-suited to one another. Her father, Louis, was Dutch and came from a solidly Dutch-Jewish background. His grandfather had been a rabbi in the north of the Netherlands, though Louis himself was what was called an assimilated and not a practicing Jew. He taught and loved the classics, was a man deeply at home among books, and something of an academic recluse. In addition, he had extremely poor sight and hearing, and he tended to hide from life behind his beloved books, and his constant refrain tended to be, all is chaos. By contrast, Etty's mother, Riva Bernstein, was Russian. 
She'd emigrated from Russia after yet another Jewish pogrom in 1907, and travelling alone all across Europe, had found her way to Amsterdam, where she met Louis. In sharp contrast to her bookish, reclusive husband, Riva was emotional, noisy, and given to sudden hysterical outbursts. And with her bright, curly red hair, she would have cut a very strange figure in the quiet provincial streets of Deventer. This unusual couple had three children. Etty was born in 1914, Jacob, known as Jap, was born in 1916, and Michael, known as Misha, was born in 1920. But it was a disturbed home. The emotional and psychological inadequacy of the parents meant that they really were not up to the challenge of raising their three very gifted children. Etty writes about her home as a chaotic madhouse with a great deal of emotional conflict. And she also describes it as being impersonal. No sense of a strong personal presence in the home. She writes, I think my parents always felt out of their depth. And as life became more and more difficult, they were gradually so overwhelmed that they became quite incapable of making up their minds about anything. They gave us children too much freedom of action and offered us nothing to cling to. That was because they never established a foothold for themselves. And the reason why they did so little to guard our steps was that they themselves had lost the way. Well, I could say a great deal more about this childhood, the conflicts, the hysterics, her two brothers who, though they were both brilliant in their different fields, were both diagnosed at different times as suffering from schizophrenia. But suffice it to say that she emerged into adulthood as an insecure, chaotic, wild, and sexually promiscuous young woman. However, a counterbalance to her emotional confusion was her intellectual ability and curiosity, and her love of books and literature, particularly Russian literature, novels of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. In 1932, she left home and she went to Amsterdam University to study law, and then on to Leiden University to study Slavic languages for a second degree. But life in these years was shifting and restless. Between 1932 and 1937, she had something like five places of lodging in Amsterdam, before eventually moving into a house with a, member of, with a number of international students which was owned by an older man called Han Vegeriff. She became his housekeeper. In 1937, he was 62, she 27. Despite their difference in age, very quickly she began an affair with him. But it was in February 1941 that the most important relationship of her life began when she met and went into therapy with a very gifted Jungian therapist called Julius Speer. He had actually known Jung personally and indeed had been in analysis with Jung and Jung wrote the foreword for Speer's book, The Hands of Children. Well, Etty very rapidly became fascinated by this man and from the beginning realized how profoundly she was in need of his help. After her very first meeting with him, she wrote him a letter 
which indicates the depth of her need. She wrote that while she was with him, a small slice of chaos was suddenly staring at me from deep down inside my soul. And when I'd left you and was going back home, well, I wanted a car to run over me, and I thought, oh, well, I must be out of my mind, like the rest of my family. But I know again now that I am not mad. I simply need to do a lot of work on myself before I develop into an adult and a complete human being. Very rapidly, a complex but immensely fruitful relationship developed with this gifted and sensual therapist. She became his patient, his pupil, his friend, sometimes his secretary, frequently his, his intellectual and spiritual soulmate, and occasionally his lover. Spear's influence upon her cannot be overstated. With him, she was able to share the struggles of her inner life, her dark depressions, her fears and insecurities, her obsessional fantasy life, her longings and desires. And gradually, over many months, to a large degree, through this relationship, she begins to deal with her inner chaos. And slowly, a deeper sense of self begins to emerge. Towards the end of the first year of meeting with him, as one reads the diary, one can detect that something is clearly happening within her. She begins to touch a kind of bedrock within herself, and the dominant note is growing confidence. On the 29th of December 1941, she writes, We can steer by what has taken shape in us, by what has reached our consciousness from the deepest depths, and has then taken shape. She tells of a visit back again to her parents' home in Devonter, but this time waking up and reveling in the day so brave and fresh, as she puts it, feeling the sharp contours of your own self. She goes on to say that the chaos can still overwhelm her at times, quote, as if I were on a great grey ocean. But on the bottom, she says, there are hills rising, elevations taking shape, the appearance of form. Something was coming to birth, a deep sense of an integrated, coherent self was being given to her. A great deal of the early part of the diaries is taken up with this inner struggle to find out this more secure inner ground. But through it, there is a growing sense of something strong emerging. On the 13th of March, she writes, It feels as if the savage hordes that used to chase one another across an immeasurable plain within me have been brought to heel, kept in order by a strong hand, and great strength now emanates from there peaceful energy, something safe and strong, harmonious, organic. Encouraged by her reading of Jung, she calls this something her centre. My centre, she writes, is growing stronger by the day. In the past, I was nothing but a fluttering, insecure little bird. And now, deep inside me, there is a centre of strength which radiates strength to the outside. Her struggle to hold on to this centre involved many strategies. 
There was her learning from Spear. Sometimes she copies out great chunks of his teaching. There was her own study and reading, particularly in the early months, the work of Jung. Later, the writings of the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke were crucial to her. There was her remarkable self-discipline, characterized by her utterly no-nonsense determination to deal with her inner chaos. Slowly, she learnt to wait through her depressions, until over time she begins to experience them as, quote, muddy ditches in a wide, blossoming landscape. There was her valuing of the intuitive level of the mind, deeper than rationality. And then there was the immensely creative use of her spiritual imagination, so that in her inner life she learns to receive the images that her intuition suggests. And more than anything, there is her growing appreciation of the importance of silence and solitude and stillness. Slowly, gradually, she learns how to rest in this centre. Speer was also key in helping her find her way outside any religious institution into the beginnings of a practice of meditation and into the beginnings of faith. Which brings me to the second part of her narrative, the forging of her very particular religious, or perhaps I should say spiritual, path. I think it's important to emphasise that Etty Hillesum did not come from a... uh, overtly religious home. Her father was an assimilated Jew, and in her diaries she never once refers to any family religious practices. She was not a child of the synagogue. And so the faith she discovers is very much her own. There were many factors that I touch on in the book which enabled a religious sense to grow in, to grow in her. It really began by her discovering, almost, it was almost like a conversion moment, that experiencing life by way of the reasoning mind isn't enough. That we need to explore a different kind of knowing. This was fed by her reading of particular religious writers. She was devoted to St. Augustine. Other than Spear, Rilke was her greatest teacher. She kept returning to the novels of Dostoevsky. And then she, a Jew, began to read the New Testament, particularly the Gospel of Matthew, which she loved, and also the letters of Paul, whom she always referred to as the Jew Paul. (laughs) Jung's work and his emphasis upon deeper levels of the mind, the power of intuition, of dreams, of the subconscious, was very important. And this encouraged her rich spiritual imagination and her sense of inner spaciousness. And then amid the mayhem and chaos of war, she found growing in her a deeper and deeper longing for silence, and insofar as she could find it, solitude. And then a crucial step. As she discovers within herself a deep inner ground, she names this God. God, she says, is what is deepest and best in me. 
Later she would say that God is what is deepest and most essential in me. And so she develops the practice, as she puts it, of hearkening or learning to listen to this inner mystery. She uses a strange word, hineinherschen, which means to hearken within. On 17th of September 1942, aware of her own exhaustion in the midst of war, she writes, Even if one's body aches, the spirit can continue to do its work, can it not? It can love and hineinherschen, hearken unto itself and unto others and unto what binds us to life. Hineinherschen. Oh, I so wish I could find a Dutch equivalent for that German word. Truly my life is one long hearkening unto myself and unto others, unto God. And if I say that I hearken, it's really God who hearkens inside me. The most essential and the deepest in me, hearkening unto the most essential and the deepest in the other. God to God. This hearkening led to a practice of kneeling down. Not a habit, she says, that uh, is very familiar to us Jews. She describes herself as the girl who could not kneel, but learned to do so on the rough coconut matting in an untidy bathroom. But this contemplative kneeling embarrasses her. For she finds well that this act is very intimate. It's no cold act of piety. Such things, she writes, are often more intimate even than sex. And so there is born in this extraordinary young woman a profound contemplative practice. Under the pressure of the terror, it becomes life-saving for her. The threat grows, grows ever greater, she writes, and terror increases from day to day. So she withdraws into her sanctuary. I draw prayer around me, she writes, like a dark protective wall. Withdraw inside it as one might into a convent cell. I can imagine times to come when I shall stay on my knees for days on end, waiting until the protective walls are strong enough to prevent my going to pieces altogether, my being lost and utterly devastated. Again and again she goes in search of the secret she has learnt on the rough coconut matting, to withdraw, to be still, and to listen. And as she practices this contemplative discipline, she finds both protection and with echoes of the Psalms, a profound comforting from some great source of life which is maternal. She finds that she's both deeply soothed and strangely surprised that among such terrible horrors there could be such profound comfort. One night as she stares out through the open window into the night sky, she writes, How strange. It's wartime. There are concentration camps. Small barbarity mounts upon small barbarity. I can say of so many of the houses I pass, here the son has been thrown into prison. There the father has been taken hostage. And an 18-year-old boy in that house over there has been sentenced to death. 
and these streets and houses are all so close to my own. I know how very nervous people are. I know about the mounting human suffering. I know the persecution and the oppression and despotism and the impotent fury and the terrible sadism. Yes, I know it all. And yet, at unguarded moments, when left to myself, I suddenly lie against the naked breast of life, and her arms around me are so gentle and so protective, and my own heartbeat is difficult to describe, so slow and so regular and so soft, almost muffled, but so constant, as if it would never stop, and so good and merciful as well. That's also my attitude to life, and I believe that neither war nor any other senseless human atrocity will ever be able to change it. So in the midst of this war, this young woman does not go to pieces. She finds herself held. And as her faith grows stronger, a deeper insight into the mystery of this life with God is born in her. The God she rests in is a God who is vulnerable. She comes to realize that amid the unfolding hell around her, the one to whom she intimately looks is not Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Almighty of the Old Testament who intervenes and saves his people, but rather is a vulnerable presence that can easily be lost and must be looked after. One of the most moving passages of the diary is when she writes about her relationship with this vulnerable God who cannot help them, and yet who they must not lose. In a prayer one night she writes, Dear God, these are anxious times. Tonight I lay in the dark with burning eyes as scene after scene of human suffering passed before me. I shall try to help you, God, to stop my strength ebbing away, though I cannot vouch for it in advance. But one thing is becoming increasingly clear to me, that you cannot help us, and that we must help you to help ourselves. And that's all we can manage these days, and also all that really matters, that we safeguard that little piece of you, God, in ourselves. Alas, there doesn't seem to be much you yourself can do about our circumstances, about our lives. Neither do I hold you responsible. You cannot help us. But we must help you and defend your dwelling place inside us to the last. Oh, there are, it is true, some who even at this late stage are putting their vacuum cleaners and silver forks and spoons in safekeeping. Instead of guarding you, Dear God, and there are those who want to put their bodies in safekeeping, but who are nothing more now than a shelter for a thousand fears and bitter feelings. And they say, I shan't let them get me into their clutches. But they forget that no one is in their clutches who is in your arms. And so in this extraordinarily gifted young woman, a profound reshaping of herself and a deep discovery of the nature of God begins to take place, which leads to her offering her life. 
and in the end losing it. Which brings me to the third question that I posed at the beginning. Where did her faith lead her? Well, a lot more time than we have is really needed to explore this. So at the risk of cutting things very short, perhaps I can identify three things particularly. First, there was her refusal to hate, which she held to to the very end. Hatred was the common currency, you could say, of every conversation among her fellow Jews in occupied, terrorised Amsterdam. But Eddie Hillesom refused to hate. However appalling the Nazi persecution became, however much she, as a Jew, found herself on the receiving end of hatred, she refused to indulge what she believed was a sickness of the soul, and she insisted that beneath the ugly realities of war, there were human beings, fallible and damaged. I try to look things straight in the eye, she wrote, even the worst crimes, to discover the small, naked human being amid the monstrous wreckage caused by man's senseless deeds. And there are striking examples in the diaries and letters of her searching for that buried human being in the faces of those who oppress them. Then, second, there was her refusal to hide. On something like five occasions, she was offered the opportunity to hide, but she refused it. Indeed, her friends and, uh, got extremely exasperated with her because they could see how gifted a person she was and how much she could give to the world. And something like 18,000 Jews successfully hid during the Nazi period. But she refused to hide. They got very exasperated, but she would have none of it. There were several reasons. To hide would be to succumb to fear. To hide would mean that she would not share the common fate of her people. And to hide, and I think this is the third thing and the main thing, to hide meant that she could not fulfill the vocation that grew in her throughout her time in Amsterdam. The vocation to use her skills with people and her skill with words, because she, she is just a natural writer. The vocation to care for the most vulnerable and the vocation to be the chronicler of their story, to tell it in all its awfulness. And so in July 1942, and I am praising what is a long, extraordinary story of self-emptying and self-giving that I've tried to capture in my book. In July 1942, she volunteered to go to Westerbork, the transit camp where all the Dutch Jews were sent. She was a member of the Jewish Council, and she had a job as a secretary in the Jewish Council offices, absolutely hated it. And after three weeks in this job, she volunteered to go to be quote, a social worker for people in transit. 
And she went carrying within her this twofold vocation to try to care for the most vulnerable and the most needy and to write, to chronicle this terrible part of Jewish history. At this moment, she writes, I know more certainly than ever that I have a task in this life, a small project, especially for me, and I shall have to live through everything. I shall become the chronicler of our adventures. Her pen would be the instrument with which she will fight this evil. But the material of their lives was hard and brutal and the story she realized was somehow unyielding. How was she to tell it? It didn't want to be told in all its awfulness. And in one passage of the diary, and this is somehow typical of the way Etty takes a metaphor and kind of uses it to convey the passion within her. In one passage, she likens herself to a blacksmith possessed of a kind of elemental passion. And I shall wield this slender fountain pen as if it were a hammer. And my words will have to be so many hammer strokes with which to beat out the story of our fate and of a piece of history as it is and never was before, not in this totalitarian, massively organized form spanning the whole of Europe. The final chapter of her story is of her time in Camp Westerbork, where, having abandoned her own self-interest, she gave herself for others, caring for the elderly and the sick, visiting people in the camp hospital, where people described her as a radiant figure, and writing their story and writing long letters back to Amsterdam. And because she was a member of the Jewish Council, these letters were, she could get these letters out. There were two long letters particularly which were used during the war by the Dutch resistance. One of them describes the conditions in the camp particularly. The mud, the overcrowding. It, it, you can still go to this place. And indeed, uh, all Dutch children do go, I understand, to Westerbork. It's a kind of part of the national Dutch story. Uh, it's up on the border in the Drenther Heath, as it's, it is a sort of heathland up in the northeast of Holland. It's, it's quite small. It's only uh, half a kilometre by half a kilometre. And still, um, there's a watchtower there and barbed wire, skeletal remains of the camp structure and the rotting uh, camp commandant's house by the gate. So you can have enough sense, although a lot of trees have grown up uh, around it now. And there's a huge block of stone right in the middle of the camp uh, with a quotation from the Psalms, my sorrow is continually before me. Um, and you can still see at your feet the lupins that she so loved and noticed when she was in the camp. And in the corner, there are 50 meters of uh, the railway line that took the train each Monday night, each Tuesday morning when it left the train down to the death camps. And people have bent up the great wrought iron uh, rails so that no train could ever run on this again. It's a powerful place to go if you're in Holland. 
So there were two long, long letters which, as I say, were used by the Dutch resistance. One of them describes the conditions in the camp, the mud, the overcrowding, the wave upon wave of pitiful people arriving by the truckload, having been hauled from their beds in the middle of the night. And the other letter particularly describes the train itself. The whole camp lived in fear of this train, which would come in every Monday evening and be loaded through the night with a thousand Jews at a time and go out in the morning, seven people to a cattle car, seven, sorry, 70 people to a cattle car. In this longer letter, Etty describes walking through the giant sheds each side of the platform as those who are on the list say their farewells and pre prepare to be put on the train. And let me give you just a little taste of her descriptions in this letter. She begins with the babies. The babies are easily the worst. Those tiny piercing screams of the babies dragged from their cots in the middle of the night to be carried off to a distant land. And then in the hospital barracks she finds a young paralysed girl who has just been learning to walk again. Have you heard? I have to go. We look at each other for a long moment. It is as if her face has disappeared. She's all eyes. And then she says in a level, grey little voice, such a pity, isn't it, that everything you have learned in life goes for nothing, and how hard it is to die. She, she catches sight of the ash-grey, freckled face of a colleague. She is squatting beside the bed of a dying woman who has swallowed some poison and who happens to be her mother. She tells of how the wailing of the babies grows louder still, filling every nook and cranny of the barracks, now bathed in ghostly light. It's almost too much to bear. A name occurs to me. Herod. She comes across a young woman who is, quote, a recent arrival and who is clearly used to luxury. She's put on many different sets of underwear and other clothing all on top of one another, and now she looks lumpy and ridiculous. Her face is blotchy. She stares at everyone with a veiled, tentative gaze, like some defenceless and abandoned young animal. What will this young woman, already in a state of collapse, look like after three days in an overcrowded freight car, with men, women, children and babies all thrown together, bags and baggage, a bucket in the middle, their only convenience? She makes her way into other barracks. Quote, I see a dying old man being carried away, reciting the Shema to himself. I see a father ready to depart, blessing his wife and child, and being blessed in turn by an old rabbi with a snow-white beard. Then she turns her gaze back to the train and the guards, as she puts it swarming over the asphalt, guns over their shoulders. Again she looks carefully, searching their faces for signs of humanity. I study their faces. I try to look at them without prejudice. And now I am transfixed with terror. Oafish, jeering faces, in which one seeks in vain for even the slightest trace of human warmth. Amid all this, this young woman remains a calm presence, able to see, able to love, able to go on giving. 
and able to go on believing that life is beautiful. And it seems clear this is because she remains rooted in the practice of her inner life. Right to the end, extraordinarily, this deepest note in her heart was the deepest note in her heart was not despair, but was a strange kind of joy which just would not leave her. She went on showing by the person that she was, despite everything, life is good, life is magnificent, she said, it is beautiful. Let me read you just one last passage which describes this extraordinary paradox of life in the midst of death. It's part of a letter she writes to her friend and indeed actually former lover, Klaas Smelik. Klaas, the misery here is really indescribable. People live in these big barracks like so many rats in a sewer. One night last week, a transport of prisoners passed through here, thin, waxen faces. I've never seen such fatigue as I did that night. Early in the morning, they were crammed into empty freight cars, then another long wait while the train was boarded up, and then three days travel eastwards. Paper mattresses on the floor for the sick, for the rest, bare boards with a bucket in the middle, and roughly 70 to a sealed car. How many, I wondered, would reach their destination alive? And my parents are preparing themselves for just such a journey. Yes, the misery here is quite terrible. And yet, late at night, when the day has slunk away into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire. And then, time and again, it soars from my heart I can't help it, it's just the way it is, like some elementary force, the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent, and that one day we shall be building a whole new world. Well, Etty Hillison physically did not survive to be part of the building of that new world. In September 1943, when she'd been in the camp for three months, an order came straight from The Hague that the entire Hillesum family was to be put on transport on the train. It seems it was because of a letter that Etty's mother had written to the head of the SS that had somehow got through, in which she pleaded for special treatment for her son, Misha, who was known as a very gifted concert pianist. The Nazis had the policy that some of the most gifted of the Jews uh, could be preserved, and so they were kind of uh, separated off and um, put into a castle up at Var Barnevelt, and she was pleading that he, that her son, and indeed the whole family should have that treatment. So incensed, apparently, was this SS commander, Rauter was his name, that a Jew should write to him that the orders were given, that they must all go on the train immediately. 
Let me read you the description written by a friend of her departure from Camp Westerborg. Talking gaily, smiling, kind word for everyone she met on the way, full of sparkling good humour, perhaps just a touch of sadness, but every inch the Etty you all know so well. I saw Mother, Father H and Misha get into wagon number one. Etty finished up in number 12. Then a shrill whistle, the train started to move, and the 1,000 transport cases were off. Another swift glimpse of Misha waving hard through a chink in wagon number one. Then a cheerful bye from Etty in number 12. And they were gone. Before the train left the Netherlands, Etty wrote a card to her friend Christine van Newton, which she threw out through a crack in the boarded-up train. It was picked up and sent on by some farmers. It read, Christine, opening the Bible at random, I find this, the Lord is my high tower. I'm sitting on my rucksack in the middle of a full freight car. Father, mother and Misha are a few cars away. In the end, the departure came without warning, on sudden special orders from The Hague. We left the camp singing, father and mother firmly and calmly, Misha too. We shall be travelling for three days. Thank you for all your kindness and care. Friends left behind will still be writing to Amsterdam. Perhaps you will hear something from them, or from my last long letter from camp. Goodbye for now from the four of us. Etty. They arrived in Auschwitz on the 10th of September. She died there on the 30th of November. So the story of a life that was damaged, was reshaped, and then was offered. And in that offering... Her life was in a place of terrible death and destruction, profoundly life-giving. Though our context is very different from hers, I believe we have very much to learn from this story. Much to learn about forging in the midst of a world that is collapsing, a spirituality of hope. Thank you. Hi, so thank you, Patrick. An extraordinary uh, summary uh, of an extraordinary story. Um, we do have time for some questions. Uh, if nobody puts their hand up, I'm going to start. So be warned. Oh, Gamma off. Excellent. <laughs> and. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm one of those people who've never heard of her. But you've opened up, you know, quite an amazing life. How come it's been hidden? You know, even I've heard about Frank and Corrie Boom that's never, never. Yes, well, that is a good, very good question. The. What happened, just very briefly to summarise the events. Um, before she left for the camp for the last time and knew she very unlikely she'd come back, she gave her diaries, which are in the um, Jewish Historical Museum in Amsterdam, 
so you can go and actually see them, or at least I was fortunate to be able to. Um, these diaries, uh, 11 uh, bound notebooks, were given to her friend Maria, a nurse friend whom she'd shared this flat with. And, and Etty said, if I don't come back, please give them to Klaas, Klaas Smalik, who was a journalist and broadcaster. Uh, I think she, she, she wanted her, the story to be told. And uh, so she, I think, hoped that it, they would be published in some form. Apparently he tried to, because I went, Sam and I and my wife went to see Klaas Smalik Jr., his son, who was until recently the professor of Old Testament at Kent University, and he told me that his father tried to get these diaries published just after the war, but nobody was interested in war diaries, no publisher was interested. So he tried for a bit and then he gave up and they went into his attic in a box. He died, I think, in 1968 or thereabouts, and his son, Klaas, inherited the diaries, and he felt that a story, this story really needed to be told, so he went to see a publisher and Balance, the publishing house, and a particular publisher, Jan Garland, read the diaries, which was quite a job because she writes at a phenomenal speed and uh, makes no great concession to tidiness. It's kind of pure stream of consciousness, pure pours out of her. So when you read that, I mean, I don't read Dutch, but I could see they're difficult to read. Um, he read them and was bowled over by them. And he, but he also could see that they were quite, parts of them are quite uh, impenet difficult to get through because there's an awful lot about struggling with her relationship with Spear. So he edited them heavily, about 50%. And in 1983, it took that long, it was, the first edition was called An Interrupted Life was published. And that went into, I think, 14 languages. And that's how she got known. But it was a very restrict... It was an edited version. Class then set to work on producing the full diaries, which were eventually published with a very careful bibliography and annotations at the end in 1986 in Dutch. And that was finally published in English in 2002. And if you have 90 quid to spare, you can get it. On Amazon, I noticed the other day it's £90. That's the full diaries and letters, except one letter, actually, which Klaas shared with me, and he had when I went to see him, um, which is a rather wonderful thing to be able to actually have a letter from her. But other than that one letter, it all went into the English edition. So it was really a question, and nobody's interested in diaries. I think there may be deeper reasons. She's, she's not somebody who fits easily into Judaism. She certainly ought not to be called a Christian saint because she was never baptised as a Christian. So she doesn't easily fit into any institutional categories. But that's the actual reason. It was just they stayed under somebody's bed and then took hours, to, years to publish. That's a good question. And I don't think anybody knows the Red Cross somehow had a record of names of when people died and she was on some list that the Red Cross were able to publish. But whether she died, whether she was gassed, whether she died of exhaustion, beaten to death, goodness knows. She was in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Why do you think um, religious institutions didn't offer anything for her? Why wasn't she interested in you know, the process when she was 
discovering the sense of God? Do you have, do you have That's a very good question. I think because her, as I tried to describe, her journey was very much through the language and the understandings, particularly of Jungian therapy. She was reowning a lot of her painful past, I suspect, with this man, this therapist, and finding a sense of integration. But he also, as I've also mentioned, was uh, Julius Speer was interested, he was a Jew, interested in Christianity. And just before he died, he told her once that he had a dream that Christ came to baptize him. So it was very much, I mean, her, her circumstances were extraordinary. She, she was in occupied Amsterdam most of the time during the war years and meeting and forming a relationship with this man and a small circle of intellectual uh, friends that met and discussed issues and so on and so forth. And it was through that kind of world of psychotherapeutic talk. And then her literature, she, she devoted to Rilke. Rilke is really important. There's something like 120 references to Rilke in the diaries and letters. I was astonished how often and began to trace the Rilke references. And she particularly was drawn to Rilke's uh, Book of Hours, which is a collection of poems, which is early Rilke. Now, Rilke had no time for the Western church. He was very contemptuous and dismissive of it. He was very drawn to the orthodox, which he'd been captivated by, when he went on his great tour of uh, Russia just before the turn of the century. But he wasn't interested in Western Catholic religion and all its pomposities. So it just didn't fit, really. But that makes her a very contemporary person, I think. Yes. Is there, is there, or do you think it's likely to be, any sort of school of thought or practice coming out of her approach to, to her faith? Do people follow her in some sort of formalised fashion? Is there a school? Yes. I, I mean, I think a lot of what she says, you can hear echoes of and is mirrored in the whole contemplative tradition. In the, in the Christian contemplative tradition. But in, in the, I mean, the whole mystical contemplative tradition uh, crosses the boundaries of religion. So she was also interested in Sufism, actually. And when her bag was searched on arrival at West, Westerbork, there was a copy of the Quran and of the Talmud, both in her bag. And, and this letter that Klaas showed me said um, that she was cleaning the toilets and eating and, and reading Meister Eckhart. <laughs> so, uh, and I think, you know, one ought to resist a kind of Etty Hillison school because there's only little fragments. She was like a kind of bright, sort of um, starlit uh, shooting star in this dark sky. Just a moment, really. Yes. Logotherapy. Yes. 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 Thank you. Lady at the back. Just answer my question, which which was to ask whether there was any evidence that she was familiar 
with the works of Meister Eckhart because it struck me very strongly, um, both from what you said and I recently read the, the edited diaries, that both this idea of you know, finding God in the ground of the soul yep. and also the her friend Maria said she was more and more interested in Eckhart in the last few months and I think this idea of detachment was very crucial to her and she struggles with what she calls my disassociation because she wants to remain present to what people are experiencing she says at one point let me when she she's lying on the top of her bunk uh, in this terribly overcrowded um, hut and she hears the young women sort of tossing and turning and groaning and weeping in their sleep. And she prays, let me be the thinking heart of these barracks. And what she's really saying is, let, what she feared most was numbness. Because they, they used to, she said in the morning, they'd wake up and say, I just don't want to think, I don't want to feel. It's too awful, I want to be numbed. That was the great enemy for her. She wanted to remain alive and thinking and seeing what was going on and writing about it and giving and able to love. So she practiced a kind of detachment, quite deliberately. And that was part of her practice, she could, a sort of disassociation. And she, she wondered about it, she said, I mustn't become too detached. But it's important that in order to be able to give to others, I don't let it overwhelm me. So I, Eckhart was very important to her. Oh, and the gentleman here in blue, I, mean, I think we've got time for one more, because the books are going to get late, so it's don't. I think her, yes, I hope so. I mean, she just wasn't in the situation to belong to any institution, but I hope so. And I, her life is a, is, a, is, a, is a challenge, really, to all of us who have anything to do with or work within or part of religious institutions to recover something of this contemplative spirit and something of this kind of discipline of contemplative practice and this courage to speak the truth because that was her great courage to speak the truth of what was happening and to tell the story and I think it's her, it's, it, her life is, is one of several lives that are a huge challenge and I say this in St Paul's Cathedral <laughs> where we know nothing of challenge <laughs> Um, uh, it's two o'clock, I'm terribly strict with other chairs, so I'm going to stop there about stopping uh, at two o'clock and say thank you so much to Patrick, that was a fantastic introduction. Um, I see a bookstall has arrived magically at the uh, back, which is going to come forward now, <laughs> forward Ellen, and set up the bookstall here. Um, I, I profoundly encourage you to, uh, to read Patrick's book, and also um, there's an edited edition of the diaries, which he tells me there are losses, but there are also marvellous things, and there's a Persephone 
edition in English, uh, perfectly affordable. But uh, begin here. It's very wonderful. Thank you. <laughs>